Welcome to Facilitating Voices, an outlet podcast. And welcome back. I'm your host, Haley Bro. On this show, we discuss difficult topics surrounding mental health, social justice issues, equity, and more. Some weeks, we listen to social workers, community members, or other passionate human service providers. And other weeks, you might hear someone's personal story about their journey to healing. I first want to address that Facilitating Voices dropped off the face of the earth for the last few months. Claire and I ended up dealing with a situation that was really difficult for us and accounted for a lot of unnecessary stress. We were starting to lose our drive to to podcast every week and decided to really focus on if we want to come back full-time and figure out what the best way for this podcast to run is. One of the things we're trying to decide is who our audience is and what format is most appropriate for us to use. While our personal experience episodes are always so great, we worry about the idea of exploitation. We're also unsure if you as the listeners like these, what we call topic episodes, which um, newsflash I'm going to do today. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, please feel free to reach out via social media at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or send us an email at facilitatingvoices at gmail.com. With that being said, in light of everything happening with Roe versus Wade, I started feeling like we couldn't stay quiet anymore. I wanted to dive deep into some high-level facts such as what is a policy, how do policies get created, approved, vetoed, what is Roe versus Wade, what does it say, and what are the impacts if this policy is no longer in place. So today will be um, what I'd call a special episode, and I can't promise that weekly episodes will resume after this. Claire couldn't join us, but if you're in the Pierce County area, Facilitating Voices is planning a march to advocate for Roe versus Wade not to be abolished. We're hoping to do it in two weeks, maybe three, and we'd love to see everyone there. More info to come soon via social media. All this up and more, but first, a quick commercial break before the show. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Juan Carlos, and I am the host of the Revisionary Podcast. And I'm producer Phil. I make them sound good. If you've never heard of the Revisionary Podcast, the way it works is we bring on guests, usually comedians, to tell a nonfiction story about their lives in which they wish things had gone a little bit differently. And we give them the opportunity to retell that story, which they can change any facts or details they want. Then we'll discuss the impact of those changes on their story. We're happy to announce we're now on the Chatter Network. And make sure you check out the Revisionary Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. The first thing I want to do is start at a really high level and explain what is the Supreme Court, who's on it, and how does it function. So let's pull out of deep memory our Schoolhouse Rock videos explaining the branches of government, or as Schoolhouse Rock would better define it, the three-ring government. I'm not going to lie, I went back and listened to the song, and it definitely is not as catchy as I remember. The noun and interjection video is much better. All right, so let's start with the legislative branch legislative branch or Congress. The legislative branch makes the laws of the United States, controls all the money, and has the power power to declare war. Mm, Not scary at all. The executive branch is the president and the vice president, and they enforce the laws of the United States, spend monies as allowed by Congress, declare a state of emergency, appoint judges to the Supreme Court, and grant pardons for crimes. And the judicial branch, which we'll be spending most of our time with today, is the Supreme Court. The judicial branch interprets laws, judges when a law is unconstitutional, and makes arrangements for prisoners. Love that that is the definition. All right, so today we're going to focus on the Supreme Court, as that is essentially 
all that really matters right now when we're thinking about Roe versus Wade. So the Supreme Court consists of what's called the Chief Justice of the United States and such a number of associate justices as may be fixed by Congress. The number of associate justices is currently fixed at eight, um, and that is determined by the 28th U.S. Code, Chapter 1. I'm going to explain a lot of this, like, really governmental jargon as we go through, so don't worry if you're already confused. Justices are nominated by the President of the United States and are appointed, um, and appointments are made with the advice and consent of the Senate. So, how does this really work right now? Article 111, Chapter 1 of the Constitution states that the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time be ordained and established. And this was all created in let's clap for it, 1789. All right. So essentially, to summarize that, there's one main person, and then there are eight other associate justices, and that number was created by law. Presidents nominate these people, so if you think about that, uh, well, that can be a really scary thing, depending on who our president is. We saw that happen when Trump was president, and he nominated Amy Coney Bar Barrett, um, excuse me, probably maybe mispronounced her name, to succeed Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Rest in peace, Queen. We need you right now. All right. So bear with me because I am going to go through all of the justices and the all the associate justices as of now. So first up, we have John G. Roberts Jr., and he is Chief Justice. So he um, was friendly of the United States courts, as they would put it, uh, for the Second Circuit from 1979 to 1980, and as a law clerk, law clerk for then-Associate Justice William H. Reinquist of the Supreme Court for the United States during the 1980 turn. He was appointed to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit in 2003. President George W. Bush nominated him as Chief Justice of the United States, and he took seat in September 29, 2005. And really, as I go through these, I'm going to give a little bit of background of maybe where they worked, um, but I'm really going to emphasize who nominated them and how long they've been an associate justice. So then we have Clarence Thomas, associate justice. So from 1981 to 1982, he served as assistant secretary for civil rights, the U.S. Department of Education, and as chairman of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. President Bush nominated him as an associate justice of the Supreme Court, and he took his seat in, on October 23rd, 1991. I'm going to age myself here and say that was five years before I was born. All right, so moving on, we have Stephen G. Brewer. He was law clerk to Justice, justice Arthur Goldberg of the Supreme Court of the United States during the 1964 term. And President Clinton nominated him as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, and he took his seat August 3rd, 1994. And from there, we have Samuel A. Alito, and he served as a law clerk for Leonard I. Garth of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit from 1976 to 1977. President George W. Bush nominated him as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, and he took his seat January 31st, 2006. 2006, the earliest we've, or the most recent we've seen. Then we have Sonia Sotomayor. She was um, litigated international commercial matters in New York City at 
Pavia and Harcourt, where she served as an associate and then partner from 1984 to 1992. President Barack Obama nominated her as an associate justice of the Supreme Court on March 26, 2009. She then assumed this role August 8, 2009. Then we have Elena Kagan. Elena Kagan served, um, she was a clerk for Judge Abner Mikva of the United States Court of Appeals for D.C. Circuit from 1986 to 1987, and then Justice Thurgood Marshall of the U.S. Supreme Court during the 1987 term. President Obama nominated, excuse me, nominated her as a Solicitor General of the United States. A year later, the President nominated her as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court on May 10, 2010. She then took her seat on August 7, 2010. We then have Brett M. Kavanaugh, Associate Justice. He served as a law clerk from, for Judge Walter Stapleton of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit from 1990 to 1991. He was nominated by the one, the only, as my dad told me the other day, my friend Donnie. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? He was being sarcastic. Da -da -da -da. President Donald J. Trump nominated as an associate justice of the Supreme Court, and he took his seat on, nonetheless, October 6, 2018. We then have, as I mentioned earlier, Amy Coney Barrett. She, I'm just gonna, we'll just jump right down to it. She was appointed a judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in 2017. President Donald J. Trump nominated her as an associate justice of the Supreme Court and she took her seat on October 27th, 2020. We then have Sandra Day O'Connor, who is a retired associate justice. President Reagan nominated her as an associate justice of the Supreme Court, and she took her seat on September 25th, 1981. Justice O'Connor retired from the Supreme Court on January 31st, 2006. All right, so the next couple I have are retired, so I won't go through them. Um, and I am missing one, so hold please, because I accidentally deleted their name. Um, but I really could keep going on and on on the history of what the Supreme Court is. And officially, I'm going to sum it up by the definition from Merriam-Webster, which is that the Supreme Court is, one, the highest judicial tribunal in a political unit, and two, a court of original jurisdiction in New York, state subordinate to the final court of appeals. Again, a law of jargon. I would sum it up as it's one executive and eight what we call associates, and they make all these big decisions at the highest federal level. However, I'll get into it more that they have very little power on what states do. But overall, can you see a pattern here? I found a diagram that shows where each justice falls on a spectrum of political ideologies. And while this doesn't mean everything, it does help us explain things. And let me just say that right now, it leans really heavy one way. I'll let you guess which way that is. I think it's also too important to note where they have jurisdiction, right? So a Supreme Court justice, associate justice, may have jurisdiction in. D.C., but not Washington, right? So for the First Circuit, we have Stephen Breyer. He serves Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Puerto Rico, and Rhode Island. The Second Circuit is Sonia Sotomayor. 
She serves Connecticut, New York, and Vermont. The Third Circuit is Samuel A. Alito Jr. He serves Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, and the Virgin Islands. Fourth Circuit, John G. Roberts, Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, West Virginia, and Virginia. The Fifth Circuit is Samuel A. Alito. He serves Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. Sixth Circuit, Brett M. Kavanaugh, Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee. Seventh Circuit, Amy Connolly Barrett. She serves Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin. Eighth Circuit, Brett M. Kavanaugh, Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota. Ninth Circuit, Elena Kagan, Alaska, Arizona, California, Guam, Hawaii, Idaho, Oregon, Montana. The Tenth Circuit is Neil M. Grish, and he is Colorado, Kansas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Utah, Wyoming. The Eleventh Circuit is Clarence Thomas, Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. And for the Federal Circuit is John G. Roberts, the Chief Justice, Jr., the Chief Justice. And reading all of those really makes me want to go back to elementary school and sing the state song, Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas. Anyways, okay. So now that we have kind of a brief overview of who's the circuit or who is the Supreme Court, how do they get elected, how long have they been elected, let's talk about how rulings are overturned. And I will really, again, I'm going at a really high level first just to understand how these things work, and then I will dive deeper into Roe versus Wade. So essentially, when the Supreme Court rules on a constitutional issue, the judgment is virtually final. Virtually. Its decisions can be altered only by the rarely used procedure of constitutional amendment or by new ruling of the court. However, when the court interprets a statute, new legislative action can be taken. So, now that we have that, I'd call it semi-decent overview of the Supreme Court, let's talk about Roe versus Wade. I'm going to read a decent amount from the case itself. However, it's really long. So after a little, I'm going to give a much simpler summary, but I do highly encourage you to look at the actual case as it's all public record. So first, there's going to be some language in here that I want to break down. So they're going to refer to Roe as the appellant, and the appellant is a person who applies to a higher court for a reversal of the decision of a lower court. And the appellee, which will be Wade, is, Wade, excuse me, is the respondent in a case appealed to a higher court. So according to OYES.org, a multimedia judicial archive of the Supreme Court of the United States, in 1870, there was a lawsuit followed by Jane Roe, which was a fictional name used in the court documents to protect the plaintiff's identity. However, I did find a different document on OYES that shows the plaintiff's real name. So I was a little confused that they said, like, let's protect it, but actually we're going to release it. You know, it's fine. No anonymity here. Anywho. Roe filed a lawsuit against Henry Wade, who was a district attorney attorney in Dallas County, Texas, challenging a law making abortion illegal except by a doctor's orders to save a woman's life. Roe was alleging that the state's laws were not only unconstitutionally vague, but that they also diminished her right of the personal privacy, which was something that was supposed to be protected by the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. So according to Britannica in 2022, There was a Supreme Court justice at the time whose name was Blackman, and he noted that only what he called 
compelling state interest justifies regulations limiting fundamental rights, such as privacy, to express only the legitimate state interest at stake. So essentially, Blackman was saying we should make these decisions, but there should be some some wiggle room here, but states shouldn't just have their own ideologies, right? So states shouldn't just be able to say if they're leaning really red at a time, this is important, this is a law, um, that there should be some parameters. And I see what he was doing here. And honestly, it's really important because Blackman is pivotal in this case, but there are also major holes here. This is why Texas was able to create their own laws. So after Blackman states his opinion, the court as a whole then tried to create guidelines on what compelling interest in the health of pregnant women and potential life of fetuses means. So then the court's determination was that a person may choose to have an abortion until a fetus becomes viable, based on the right to privacy contained in, due process, in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Viability in this case can be defined as the ability to live outside the womb, which usually happens between 24 and 28 weeks after conception. So a couple things to break down here. Due process in itself means fair treatment through the normal judicial system, especially as a, a citizen's entitlement. The 14th, of the, the 14th Amendment of the United States says this, um, and so that's where the due process clause is in the 14th Amendment. So the University of Minnesota Human Rights Library cites that the 14th Amendment states that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the ju jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any persons of life, liberty, liberty or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protections of the law. So, I personally find that, that very vague and confusing, and that honestly has been the problem with this section of the 14th Amendment the whole time. What we want to focus on is where it talks about due process. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And I'm going to expand on that. So Oyez breaks this down really well for us. So essentially, if we bring that all back to the case, right? So now we understand that there's this really vague clause in the 14th Amendment, and Roe is essentially saying that there is a right through multiple amendments, but essentially there was a majority ruling after Blackman made this note saying that there should be some jurisdictions that maybe, maybe this isn't exactly right. And so other people agreed with him. The majority ruling in the, at the time included Harry Andrew Blackman, Warren Earl Berger, William Orville Douglas, William Justice just Joseph Brent Brennan Jr., Potter Stewart, Thurgood Marshall, Lewis Franklin Power Jr. The majority found that it was appropriate to use strict scrutiny when reviewing restrictions on abortion based on it being part of the fundamental rights of privacy. Again, we just keep going back to the fundamental rights of privacy. However, Blackman did not really care to actually identify the exact part of the Constitution where the right of privacy can be found 
although he noted that it definitely is in the 14th rather than the 9th Amendment. Like, what? And so, really, that that is so important. Like, that, in my opinion, is some of the most pivotal information to know, right? Because Roe came and said that this was a um, unconstitutional based on the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. Roe said that it was unconstitutional based on multiple amendments. And black men said, yeah, well, it's definitely only the 14th Amendment, but I don't really know where, but it is based on right of privacy, and it's not the Ninth Amendment. So can you see how this is controversial? Also, can we talk about how there were no female justices at the time? So. Oyez also talks about, Oyez.com, excuse me, also talks about how it was known that Blackman was particularly interested in this case because the time he spent at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota during the 1950s, where he spent time researching abortions. So essentially, you have a full Supreme Court of men and one who is, and I quote, advocating for this case, but really from a lens of the right of privacy of physicians to practice medicine without state interference not actually for women's bodily autonomy. Now, I want to make it clear here, while I'm bashing a lot of how this came to, is that I fully support Roe versus Wade. However, I also think it's imperative that we understand why this case is able to be overturned, and a major part of that, in my opinion, and seemingly the opinion of others, is that there were huge holes when this all came to, and this is one of them. So essentially, How I would summarize this case in a nutshell is we had a woman advocating for women's reproductive rights, which also I didn't mention earlier. She was accused of lying and saying that she just, you know, she was lying and she was saying she was raped. Um, And then men decided, well, you know, hmm, physicians should have rights and we don't want physicians questioned. And that's like essentially universalism, right? So you you protect a doctor and then that that policy then protects everyone and that'll help women right looks good and from that we did we didn't in fact get rights and so i think you know it's it's hard because everything we're talking about right is how this cannot be overturned but if things were not in place wrongly to begin with if someone had been advocating and making these points based on actual concern and care for women, there maybe would be more protection. Anyways, moving on. So another important part of Roe versus Wade is the fact that states can push against the 14th Amendment and really any amendment, right, to express only the legitimate state's interests only if There are legitimate state interests at stake. Planned Parenthood recently released an article that talks about how this happened in Texas through Senate Bill 8. Senate Bill 8 bans abortions at approximately six weeks of pregnancy, which is really problematic because many people don't know they're pregnant at eight weeks. Senate Bill also has what Planned Parenthood described as a sue thy neighbor scheme, which encourages any person in the state to sue people who help someone get an abortion. So let's say that, and I'm trigger warning what i'm about to say is potentially really triggering i live in texas i am raped and at nine weeks i found out i'm pregnant 
my sister takes me to get an abortion because I can't live with this child. This child will be a child of rape. And my sister's coworker finds out that she helps me. Texas is encouraging for those who know to sue people that help. And I'll take it even a little bit more, maybe what we would call realistic. I have an ectopic pregnancy. Or let's say that I, unfortunately, I saw a post from someone that I went to school with recently, and they were pretty far along in their pregnancy, and the child died. And if, let's say, her husband goes with her to have a medical abortion, someone could then sue her and her husband for having an abortion. So I just, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but when the Supreme Court allowed Senate Bill 8 to go into effect on September 1st of this year, there's been catastrophic consequences. When women and people who can get pregnant become pregnant in Texas after eight weeks and need to have an abortion, they're, fo- they're forced to travel long distances to get an abortion, stay pregnant, or potentially try risky ways of abortion. When the Supreme Court allowed this, many other states have now created similar bills, which could go in effect immediately if Roe v. Wade is overturned. So, how does this affect you, me, your brother, your mom, your cousin at the state level? Things do get confusing when we think about how state governments work in comparison to federal rulings. When the Supreme Court makes a decision, all federal courts must abide by that decision. However, like we saw in Texas, the Supreme Court cannot interpret state laws or issue arising or issues arising under state constitution, constitutions. So essentially, they are told what to do, told they can't differ, but no one will actually hold them accountable. Sounds like they're describing most men that I know. Okay, and that was a stab. And not to be generalized to all men and the women, however, men shouldn't be making decisions about women's bodies or those who identify as female or who can get pregnant. And I think a way that was like this was similarly explained to me recently was if you work in education, the state says, hey, school districts, these are laws. You have to, for example, I don't know, hire school social workers. However, once the state makes that decision, they don't govern what every district does themselves. So let's say a district says, Meh, um, I'm going to hire one. Or I'm really not going to hire any. And another district says, I'm going to hire one per school. The state has no jurisdiction to really go down and say, hey, this is wrong. And so it's probably the most fucked up um, description of government. but. It just is what it is. And so when we think about what will happen if it's overturned, not only will we be going back to medieval times, 26 states could very easily and very quickly move to ban abortion. Some states have policies that can ban abortion immediately. Planned Parenthood states that 36 million women, plus many others who can become pregnant, are at risk of losing abortion access in their state. 
This includes 5.7 million Hispanic or Latino people, 5.3 million Black people, 1.1 million Asian people, and about 340,000 American Indian or Alaska Native people. So what else could be affected? In an article by King 5, written by Christine Pei in the King 5 News, Christine speaks with Sital Kalantri, a professor of human rights, comparative law, and contract law at Seattle University. Christine has done extensive research on reproductive rights. She discusses how the draft opinion guts all of the constitutional grounds that Roe is based. She makes the point that if this is overturned, it opens a room up the room for other constitutional laws to be overturned. Seemingly, one of the most important cases this could affect is the case that allowed the, for the legalization of same-sex marriage, which was also a landmark case that draws parallels in the determination that should be right to privacy. Kalantri goes on to say that Justice Samuel Alito, who drafted the medieval opinion that women are just pieces of meat, again, <laughs> my own words, I mean conservative opinion, state that there should be no concern over other cases. However, Kalantri and myself find that hard to believe. So I just gave you a very fast, very quick overview of the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade, state levels, how this impacts other cases, other laws, other protections. And I know myself up until this week, I've been feeling very helpless, but there are ways you can advocate for change or support in this movement. One, you can donate to organizations that support safe abortions and health care for women. You can attend a rally or a march, or better yet, help organize one in your community if there are none happening. Claire and I have decided to organize a march in our community, and there are a lot of free resources out there that outline it. We were able to reach out to our old social work program, to other social work programs in the community who have young people who want to be involved, who can take on different roles, right? So um, I am happy to organize, to lead this movement, but I know that the day of, I don't want to be the person with the megaphone starting the chance, right? But there are people that have offered to do that. There are people that have offered to call senators, and that's something you can do as well. You can reach out to your state senators. Clara spoke to a state rep from Oregon who she knows, and the state senator recommended that she reach out to all the state reps in her district, both congressional and state legislators. And I couldn't believe it. I swear, Claire texted me, let's say, like 11, and by 12.30, she had heard back. So some may think that this is a moot point, but state representatives are paid by the people to support the people. And while obviously they all aren't the best, as in any situation, they do read letters or they have people that answer calls. I recommend starting with those who have more liberal views, if this is something you support, um, who support Roe versus Wade, staying a court ruling, and then enlist support to talk to opposers. If you can have a few good conversations with people that are on the same side as you, they can help encourage you to have those conversations with people that are opposing. And having those conversations with people that are opposing or having people that know someone in power who hold some power in those spaces, then you can really make a difference. So at this point in the episode, I hoped I've helped you explain Roe versus Wade a little better um, for you. When I decided to do this episode, I asked if anyone would be willing to share any experiences they have that are directly tied to women's 
reproductive rights in light of Roe versus Wade. I received one story, and I'm going to share the story from Planned Parenthood. They have lots of good stories out right now, and I understand that this may be triggering for some. So, as always, when I have trigger warnings, if you need to stop the episode now, I see you and I hear you. Take time for yourself, take care of yourself, and remember, we're in this fucking fight together. If you want to continue listening, also please be cautious of traumatization or re-traumatization. As always, please feel free to pause or take a break. It can be extremely hard to hear stories like this. However, also, it can be really empowerful. Empowering. <laughs> Excuse me. So first, I'm going to read a story from someone that reached out to me, one of our listeners. This listener said, My mom was forced to have an ab- illegal abortion by her mom when she was 15 which resulted in her having a full hysterectomy when she was in her 30s because of scar tissue and medical complications. She could also never conceive biological children and spent a ridiculous amount of money on IVF, which caused my parents to go bankrupt at the time. My parents ended up adopting my siblings and I. Her and I have never talked about it extensively because it's so painful for her, but I do know that she went to a man's house at night who claimed to be a doctor and she said it was the most painful and terrifying thing she has ever endured. She did not personally want to have the abortion, but had she had access to a safe abortion, she may have been able to conceive biological children later on. I'm just going to take a minute to let that story sink in. So moving to the next story, I did pull this from um, Planned Parenthood. And I'll put the source notes in the description of the episode. So if you want to look, um, I pulled the story that was at the top of the page, but Planned Parenthood does have more stories. This can be helpful maybe if you're struggling to understand how this, this would actually impact someone or if you're struggling to explain to someone how this may impact someone. Maybe you don't know that there is someone around you who has been impacted by safe um safe abortions and honestly healthcare for all women so this story says at a routine 20 week ultrasound my husband and i found out that the baby had several heart defects 20 years ago at age 31 i had a 3 and a half year old son and was pregnant with my second child at a routine 20 week ultrasound my husband and i found out that the baby had several heart defects we went to see several specialists to see if his heart could be fixed after he was born They told us that he would continue to live and grow in utero, but would die after birth. His heart had too many problems to fix. They could not tell us how long he would live, but that he would be in pain since he did not have a fully functioning heart. We decided to spare him the suffering and interrupted the pregnancy at 22 weeks. I gave birth to my beautiful baby boy, who weighed one pound. My husband and I held him until he passed away, and even after a while afterward. It was a heartbreaking choice to let him go but it was my choice and my husband's choice with input from medical professionals. No government has a right to say in such personal and life-altering decisions. Terminations were allowed until 24 weeks in Texas at the time. A woman in Texas does not have the option that I had. So, I know that is a difficult note to end on. However, I, I didn't want to start the episode with those stories just as they're really difficult to read to hear to share and so I really encourage you 
I'm telling you, I have gone through so many emotions in the last couple weeks between being terrified and fucking angry and then terrified again and hopeless. And we can <laughs> try to make an impact. And I wish that I say, could say with 100% certainty that our impact would make a difference. However, it will make some difference. And all that we have control over is our ability to try. So again, I just really encourage you, if you're in the Pierce County area and you want to be involved in Claire and I's March, please feel free to reach out. Please feel free to look up. Please, I encourage you to look up other organizations that support healthcare, the local Planned Parenthoods in your, in your uh, community. One of the things that we are going to offer um, for people that want to be involved in our march, but maybe don't have the ability or do not feel compelled or safe to actually march, you know, there are other opportunities to reach out to the state senators to help us create marketing materials, right? And so I encourage you to do what you can to be involved, to take some control in this terrifying fucking time. And I hope that I can hear stories from you, please feel free to reach out to Claire and I. Again, I don't know that we will be coming back week to week. However, if you push us, we can maybe we can maybe try, but really, times are fucking hard, and they just seem to be getting harder. And I do want to have a strength mindset. So really, we're here. We, we hear you. We see you. We want to use our platform to spread awareness. And so, as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for coming back and listening. I can't say stay tuned in weeks to come, but stay tuned in weeks to come for our March information. Maybe not episodes, but remember, we all make a difference and we all have a say in this fight. I hope to hear you back, hear back from you in the coming weeks. As always, bye. I'm out of practice. I don't know why I said just bye. I can't remember my outro. So again, thanks for being here. We appreciate you and we hope to hear from you soon.